52 degrees at uh, about six minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. Time for our Phelps Health Program, and uh, Paige Heitman is your host. Good morning, Paige. Good morning, Lee. How you doing? Good. Good to see you again. Uh, you, you're all prepared and ready to go. You brought me a nice little book. I appreciate that. And you have a lovely lady with you today. Going to talk about hospital stuff? I do, yes. So today um, on Ask a Pre- Professional, we have Jenna Lizenby, who is a nurse practitioner at Phelps Health DDCI. So welcome. We're super excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and this isn't even your first time here, so you're kind of a veteran for us, which is kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> so I should just let you run the show. <laughs> so Jenna, tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I, my name is Jenna Lizenby. Like she said, I am born and raised in Rolla, Missouri, um, homegrown, as they say. I've been at the hospital um, a little over 10 years now. actually started there as a nurse's aide um, while I was going through nursing school. and went to nursing school here um, at East Central College in Rolla and then finished my undergraduate degree in at a Central Methodist University online. Um, continued to work at the hospital kind of throughout that course in time and then went back to St. Louis University to finish my master's degree and became an adult nurse practitioner. Um, I worked in the hospital side of things for a while and most recently for about the last four and a half years I've been in radiation oncology over at DDCI and um, can't imagine doing anything else. So you stay very busy. Very busy, yes. So a you said lifetime packed in. Here. I know, like right? Let's just talk about that. And you have two kids on top of it, yes. under five, yes. which is wild. Yeah. <laughs> you have a very busy life, which yes. is really exciting. Definitely. So you said that you can't imagine doing anything else in radiation oncology. So the Phelps Health Delbert Day Cancer Institute is really unique, and I think it's really special. So tell uh, our listeners why the Phelps Health Delbert Day Cancer Institute is so special to you. Um. You know, I mentioned that I'm homegrown, and um, it's really nice to be able to kind of give back to the community um, in any way. Uh, Our patients are oftentimes at the most difficult, you know, one of the most difficult phases of their lives, and it's really an honor and a pleasure to be able to serve them during that time. Um, You know, the one thing I think that sets us apart from other cancer centers, and I'm sure they do it well also, but um, I think is really one thing we do well is it's the people inside the cancer center that... Mm -hmm that really make us unique. Um, From the front desk staff, you know, the registration staff, the lab techs, the nurses, um, our radiation therapists, our oncology nurses upstairs, really everyone, all of the providers um, have the the patient's best interests at heart. Um, We really feel like they're our family and I hope they feel the same way. So I think that's one thing that um, really sets us apart is the, the level of personal care that we give our patients. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, This is a little off topic, but last week on our show, we talked about how unique Phelps Health System is. You can Mm -hmm. walk in and I can walk in and be like, hey, Jenna, how's it going? How are the kids? Or somebody can walk in and say, hey, I saw you guys at the ball game last week. That was a great game. Um, So-and-so did awesome. Let's talk about that. And that is so cool to to Rolla and our Phelps Health System. I have that personal connection with, um, I'd say, a, a good number of our patients, and it really does make a difference. It does, yeah. So whenever you go in for treatment, that's not just the only thing that you have to worry about that day. You kind of get to to go outside of yourself and you get to talk to people so it makes you feel more comfortable. You know, and oftentimes cancer touches, you know, multiple people in a family mm-hmm. at some point over their lifespan. And so um, we often have family members of, mm-hmm. of prior patients that come back and, you know, they're familiar with us, we're familiar with them. And um, again, that's that can be very comforting in a difficult time. Yeah, it makes the hard process a little bit easier, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. So today we're talking about colorectal cancer. So what is colorectal cancer? 
So colorectal cancer is um, it's a cancer that starts in the colon or the rectum. We often um, group those two together because of their similarities. They are really different cancers, and we treat them in different ways oftentimes. Um, but again, you know, that's kind of they're kind of grouped together oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So um, excluding skin cancers, colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer that's diagnosed in both men and women in the United States. Um, the American Cancer Society estimates that the number of colorectal cancer cases in the U.S. for 2020 um, are going to be somewhere around 100,000, maybe a little over colon cancer, and around 40,000 rectal cancer. So touching a lot of people, it's an important topic, um, something that, you know, in, in many, um, many times is preventable or certainly treatable if we can catch it early. So it's something that we really need to do a good job of um, making sure people are educated on. Because it's so common, let's talk about how it starts. Okay. So um, colorectal cancer starts, well, any, any type of cancer starts mm -hmm. when, you know, we have an overgrowth of abnormal cells. Um, that can happen pretty much anywhere in the body, but in colorectal cancer specifically, um, it starts in the lining of the colon or the rectum. Um, these growths are called polyps. There's a couple different kinds of polyps. You know, some are more high risk than others. Um, the most high risk are co considered adenomas. Um, these polyps are the ones that you have to worry about changing into cancer. Um, hyperplastic polyps, inflammatory polyps, those are things that are a little bit more high risk but that we still want to keep an mm -hmm. eye on. Um, the chance of a polyp becoming into, turning into cancer um, really depends on what type it is. Um, but oftentimes it can take up to 10 to 15 years for that polyp wow. to actually turn into cancer. So that really gives us a good window mm -hmm. to um, do appropriate screening, remove those polyps, and hopefully prevent that from happening. Is it something that somebody would notice on the day-to-day, -day, kind of like breast cancer screenings, or how do you even begin that process? So not necessarily. That's one of the things that makes it dangerous is that colon cancer can often be kind of a silent, you know, thing that's growing in your body and you have mm -hmm. no idea um, by the time you do have symptoms, it can often be mean that you're at a more advanced stage of the cancer, which, um, you know, treats things, we have to treat a little differently. Um, we see that happen oftentimes when the colon cancer spreads. So as that polyp continues to grow, kind of grows into the inner lining of the colon or the rectum, as it grows deeper, um, it can grow into the blood vessels, the lymph vessels, and then those can kind of be like a highway for, you know, things to spread throughout the body. Um, and you know, as I said, the, mm -hmm. the, the more it spreads, the more advanced yeah. the cancer is, the harder it is for us to treat. Mm -hmm. And for all of our listeners, um, we don't just have like lymph nodes in one area of our body. We have a whole lymphatic system, right? Absolutely. Yes. So Spread. it goes from like our neck everywhere. all the way down. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everywhere. So, you know, we know that there's the <clears throat> most common places to look for, um, you know, lymph nodes with colon cancer, um, but certainly it can it can spread to other parts of the body too. Wow. So it sounds like screening is really important for colon cancer because of that 10 to 15 year window. That's a really long time. It is. And, you know, the screening as a general rule is tolerated well. Um, you know, people, I think there's, that's, that's there's a the, stigma with there it. There is a stigma with it. And, <laughs> and when we ask people, um, you know, what their barriers are for not getting screened, um, most of them are, are things that we can overcome. And so I think it's really important that we just uh, make sure people are aware that we can overcome those barriers, um, that this is something that's really important. So from the time that somebody decides that they want to get screened, what does screening look like? How do you screen for colorectal cancer? So there's a couple different ways to screen. The most common way that, um, that we screen colon cancer is, is with a colonoscopy. 
Um, colonoscopies are something that, again, have a lot of stigma attached mm-hmm. to them. Um, as a general rule, the American Cancer Society recommends that screening starts at about age 45 um, for somebody who's of a general risk category. Um, the, there's a couple other um, agencies that recommend 50, but, you know, talk with your physician, your primary care provider. Um, age 45 to 50 is really where we want to start those screenings. So with a colonoscopy, um, you have a, a surgeon or um, a gastroenterologist or, you know, whoever's performing that procedure that's going in with a scope, um, examining as much of the colon as they can. There is some prep that goes, uh, you know, with that. And I think that's, of what, course. that's what a lot that's of people what's are scary. Kind of fearful about. Um, that's usually about 24 hours prior to the procedure. Again, people tolerate it very well. Um, and and oftentimes it's it's not near as big of a deal afterwards mm-hmm. <laughs> as they are. So part of that prep, let's just debunk that. Uh-huh. So you just take like what, like a liquid and then you don't eat anything for 24 hours. You can drink. Like there water. are so it, it kind of varies based on the preference of the person mm-hmm. who's performing the the scope. Um, there is oftentimes a bowel prep, meaning mm-hmm. we're kind of cleaning everything out of there yep. so that we can make sure that we can see the lining well. Um, they do usually have you do some sort of diet restrictions mm-hmm. in a certain period of time leading up, but again, that's kind of up to the preference of whoever's performing the scope. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take a lot of things to, into account, so kind of a unique um, recommendation there. But as a general rule, it's it's about a day ahead of time that you would mm-hmm. have to do some of that prep. Which really isn't that bad. It's not like you're having to do it a week ahead of time. It's literally 24 hours of your life right. to and find out if everything's good and clean. Right. And, and <laughs> you know, and prevent something mm-hmm. that could potentially, yeah. you know, that, that's what we really want to stress to people is this is 24 to 48 hours. You return back to normal. You resume a normal diet as soon as this is over. Um, as opposed to kind of ignoring these, um, developing a colon cancer that requires treatment that could potentially take you out of work and life for, you know, months. Yeah. And can really cause a lot of financial duress for, for many families. Absolutely. Yes. So with the general risk, what does that look like? Is it different for men and women? Is it kind of the same? So the, you know, family history plays into a big part of it. If you had a close family member who um, has been diagnosed with colorectal cancer, particularly Mm -hmm. at a young age, um, they generally, I think the general guideline is that they recommend you start screening um, approximately 10 years before they were diagnosed. Again, that's something that you want to kind of go through those risk factors with your primary care provider um, and determine where you fall in that risk category. Um, The other things that kind of create a higher risk um, and might, indicate that you need screening earlier um, would be a personal history of inflammatory bowel disease. So that's not irritable bowel disease, but more like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. Um, There are some hereditary conditions. Um, Lynch syndrome is the one that people are probably most familiar with um, that indicate that we need to screen earlier, more frequently. Um, Most people are you know, have a family history of that and, and mm-hmm. are aware of it, or it's something that they would be talking to you about if they had um, abnormalities. Um, other indications to get screened earlier might be that, um, you know, if you've had radiation um, for a different type of cancer to your abdomen um, or a prior treatment of cancer. So those would be some, some reasons to get screened earlier. Okay. So one thing that you mentioned is that um, there's 10 years before somebody else was diagnosed in your family. So let's say somebody had a like mother who was diagnosed and the mother was like 35. So then could the kids get a screening at 25? Um, so again, something that mm-hmm. that needs to be discussed with whoever's performing the scope. Yeah. But there are instances, certainly, especially that could be an option if they if they have a strong suspicion of you know mm-hmm. Lynch syndrome, um, where we see colon cancer often diagnosed at a young age, where that might be an option and it might be mm-hmm. an appropriate interval to start those screenings. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. So again, it's really important to have a primary care physician so that they know your family history. Absolutely. Yes. Which I think people forget that you don't wait until something's wrong to go to the doctor. Yeah. You go to the doctor ahead of time to prevent a lot of these illnesses and diseases. Absolutely. And these are all screening recommendations. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're a generalized recommendation for the general population. And as we know, you know, medicine's a very unique um, individualized kind yeah. of... It's not one size fit all, it right? It is not. And so having that primary care physician that knows you, knows your family history, mm-hmm. um, that you can go to and say, you know, something's just not right. Um, I had this happen. I, you know, my appetite's different. I'm losing weight unintentionally. Mm-hmm. I feel full faster. I've noticed some blood in my stools. Um, my stools look a little bit different than they did before. Those are all kind of red flag warning signs for us. And so being able, having somebody that you can go to and say, you know, these aren't, I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can help you kind of sort through those risks about um, how far we need to go to evaluate them. Yeah. And then they can be your advocate too, versus going in the very first time, like a walk-in and being like, hey, these are all my symptoms. What can you do today? Right. That's not going to happen the first time you go to a primary care. Right. They're going to want to understand who you are, what's been going on, what's your family history. Yes. But if you already have that established, it's going to be a lot easier of a process. Definitely. Yes, which is yes. awesome. Mm-hmm. So lab testing can also kind of help plan treatments for patients with colorectal cancer, right? Um, yeah. So there's a lot of things that go into... Um, you know, once, so once we, once we do the screening, uh-huh. they remove any polyps, um, hopefully none of those are cancerous. And then, yep. you know, they'll make recommendations for, um, you know, when you need to return from screening. A lot of people think the 10 years, there are some instances where we do that a little bit closer together. So three years or five years. And again, that's really based on the findings of that screening colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, so say they find a, a diagnosis of, of colon cancer and you end up with, Um, a visit with an oncologist, you know, we have to go through a full staging workup. Um, That oftentimes includes, you know, a variety of labs, um, testing, as you mentioned, on kind of the the biopsy specimen that they take out. Um, Images, you know, may include CT scans, may include a PET scan. There's kind of a lot of things that go into that decision-making process when it comes to treating colorectal cancer. Um, As far as the treatment goes, Um, there's probably going to be a number of people on the care team for that. So they might include um, a surgeon or a gastroenterologist who's doing the initial scope and and may plan for surgery at a later date. Um, It may include a medical oncologist who would be the one that would primarily do some sort of, you know, chemotherapy, um, radiation oncologist, um, where we do kind of targeted radiation therapy to an area that might be at, you know, that maybe we need to shrink prior to surgery or maybe is at high risk for having cancer grow back there. Um, at the DDCI, we have kind of a whole ter- care team um, outside of just the, you know, the standard kind of medical oncologist, radiation oncologist. We have our nurse practitioners who um, also see patients both for on treatment visits to um, kind of help with symptom management, um, to mm-hmm. do some of their follow-up care. Um, we have a dietitian that follows our patients really closely throughout the duration of their treatment, make sure that they're, you know, staying, um, you know, hydrated, make sure they're getting the appropriate number of calories, make sure they're not losing weight. Um, we have social workers, we have nurse navigators to try to kind of ease them through the process as much as possible. Um, we're in the process of trying to add a supportive care team to help with kind of all of those aspects mm-hmm. and, and at, a, at a higher level. And so um, really we have a, a well-rounded group of team members on the cancer care mm-hmm. team that help people get through that process. Yeah, I think a lot of people really feel like they become family. Yeah. 
and in a time that is already really, really hard and really tough, they come into the DDCI and they feel really loved and they feel taken care of and they know that everybody is there to support them yeah. on their journey, Yeah, which is awesome and special. We do. We get to know the patients. We get to know their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we celebrate their victories and, and definitely... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, struggle with their, with their struggles right along with them. Yeah. You're right there with them every step of the way. So something that I think a lot of people always wonder about too is, did I get cancer because of the DNA? Was it my genes that caused that? So what causes colorectal cancer or other types of cancer in general? So, um, typically as we mentioned earlier, it's kind of an overgrowth of cells Mm -hmm. or overgrowth of abnormal cells. Um, this does happen at the cellular level where Mm -hmm. there's some kind of Um, you know, mutation, DNA damage, something that causes those cells to kind of um, divide without that checks and balances system that we, that we typically have in our normal cell growth. Um, There are some things that increase people's risk of, of colorectal cancer. Um, We kind of die, we, we divide these into um, what we call modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So non-modifiable risk factors are things you can't change. Um, Those would be things like your age. So being over 50, personal history of colorectal cancer or polyps, Um, the inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's, like we mentioned before, Um, family history, an inherited genetic disorder like Lynch syndrome. There are certain types of race and ethnic ethnic backgrounds that have a higher risk. So um, we know that African Americans have the highest risk of colon, colon cancer, colorectal cancer incidence um, and and mortality rates of all racial groups in the U.S. Um, they're having type two diabetes can increase your risk. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other modifiable risk factors. So these are the things that we really want people to know about because this is what you can change. You know, this is what you can do to reduce your risk that this goes on to, de- to develop into colorectal cancer. So being overweight increases your risk, um, especially if you have a larger, uh, you carry your weight in your abdomen, you know, along mm-hmm. your waistline. Um, men are more at risk in that category than women. Um, because they like beer (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know being physically Uh inactive um, certain diets so diets high in red meat beef pork lamb liver Mm -hmm. processed meats like hot dogs and lunch meats um, cooking meats at a very high temperature so frying broiling grilling meats actually Mm -hmm. increases the risk more than um, like baked meats Um, we encourage people to eat diets that are high in vegetables high in fiber you know fruits whole grains um, smoking, you know, people think about smoking and, and just being limited to lung cancer, but it really increases your risk for all cancers, including colorectal cancer. Um, moderate to heavy alcohol use, you know, no more than two drinks per day for men, one drink for women. And so um, knowing all of those, you know, screening is really the most powerful tool that we have. And what we know is that of of the three people, you know, of every three people who need to be screened, only about one of those people get screened. So it's only about a third of the U.S. population wow who should get tested that's actually getting tested appropriately. That's kind of scary. It is, and there's, you know, it leaves a lot of room for improvement. (laughs) It really does. So everybody, schedule an appointment with a primary care, go get tested. (laughs) Right, and if, you know, if you're you're afraid of a colonoscopy, Mm -hmm. talk to them about, again, what what your fears are, what those Mm -hmm. barriers are. Um, A lot of people are worried about, you know, would my insurance pay for it? Well, there are some regulations in place that for these screening colonoscopies, um, that, that they're covered on almost all insurances at, at basically no cost to the patients. Um, the, the kind of contrary to that is if you wait until you're having symptoms, it's no longer considered a screening test. You know, it might be, cons- it might be something that's paid for a little bit differently by your insurance. So get screened. Um, 
if for some reason you can't have a colonoscopy, your doctor decides it's not the best option for you or you, you know, just won't for whatever reason, uh-huh. um, there are other other tests available. Um, so there's some stool-based tests where you can collect your stools. Um, they kind of look, you know, look at those um, uh-huh. for, for DNA or, or indications that there might be cancer cells um, mm-hmm. kind of floating around. Now, those aren't as good as a screening colonoscopy, of course. But, but it's still an option. But it's an option. Yeah, certainly. And so, um, and and if those are abnormal, then of course we're going to recommend a colonoscopy to take yes. a more direct mm-hmm. look. But, but, but that's definitely. a baby step, right? It is. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's definitely better than nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if somebody does have colorectal cancer, what options do the patients have for treatments at the DDCI? So uh, we have uh, medical oncology and radiation oncology in the DDCI. We also work very closely with um, the surgical team and the gastroenterology team, who are, team who are also part of our, you know, our cancer care team. Um, what that treatment plan looks like is is very individualized, mm-hmm. but often includes, you know, some combination of surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, um, and and that looks very different for everyone, but. Um, you know, just know that if you find your, yourself in that position, we have the options to treat those here. Um, we've got an amazing staff, and, and we'll help support you through it. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever I was kind of putting this outline together, I saw a really cool stat that um, the death rate from colorectal cancer has been dropping in both men and women for several decades. So I don't know if maybe you would like to talk about that a little bit. I think that's kind of cool. Even though we're still missing some of the screenings, it looks like we're still doing a great job with the patients that we get. Yeah, I think um, hopefully we're doing a better job of educating people about why, yeah. you know, why the, um, the screening is important. Um, I also think that as a, as a cancer community, you know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to identify what those barriers are and break those barriers down. And so, again, I mentioned the financial aspect and there's been some, you know, changes in the last several years on, on insurance where we have, you know, maybe better coverage for those screening colonoscopies Mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully, um, employers are giving you know, people the time off to do these, these kinds of tests. But I think just doing a better job of educating the public, um, having a focus on health and, and disease prevention. And, and I, I, I think and I hope that as a general rule, people are just more aware of kind of what those healthy mm-hmm. um, lifestyles are, those, those modifiable risk factors that we can really control. Yeah. And, uh, and I hope that that's contributing and we see further decrease in that in the future. So one thing you said that I really love just now is disease prevention. So why is disease prevention so important? We talked about the polyps. You know, it's, yeah. it's certainly easy to it's easier to go in for a colonoscopy and and have this. You know, even though the unpleasant prep, but you have uh-huh. the prep. Um, you have a quick procedure. You go home, and that one procedure has prevented potentially six, twelve months, maybe more of treatment down the road. Um, so I think the earlier that we can get to these, the better our chances are for curing them. The easier the treatment is on the patients, um, and knowing that we can potentially prevent these from mm-hmm. from happening at all is really it's really encouraging you know i think i think that's a best case scenario and so hopefully yeah. we see more of that yeah absolutely and you know maybe another way to think about this too is that we're not just doing it for us we're doing it for our families definitely because um, i'm i'm kind of newly married so i imagine if i got sick like man i can't imagine waiting and then getting so sick that i pass away and then leave my husband by himself to to handle everything yeah Cancer treatment certainly does not just affect the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really a family diagnosis, the treatment, yeah. 
um, includes the family. It, it's a struggle for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, we see caregivers struggling. Um, yeah. I've, I've seen it affect my, my family personally. And mm-hmm. so absolutely, you know, if, if for some reason you won't do it for you, do it for your kids, do it for your spouse, you know, do it for your parents, um, do it forever, but just make sure you're getting screened. Yeah, that's awesome. So on that note, um, we've been speaking today with Jenna Lizenby, nurse practitioner at Phelps Health Delbert Day Cancer Institute. Thank you so much for your time and your yeah. knowledge. You've been an awesome veteran to have back. <laughs> so I definitely want to have you back some more. Maybe next time we'll just let you host. <laughs> for more information about Phelps Health Delbert Day Cancer Institute, visit phelpshealth.org. Thank you so much for being here today. If you missed part of the show or would like to listen to it again, please visit phelpshealth.org. Thanks so much.